0: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios.
1: This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive
2: Thoughts. A Christ, the repairer of Satan's evil doing, assumes manhood in its fullness, not as a disguise, but completely, and saves man and becomes the greatest example of us all. Every episode, we bring you guys a different voice from history and a sermon
3: that they delivered today. We're listening to Gregory of Nyssa. We're going back. This is preached in the year 383 in Cappadocia, and this sermon would be preached during a festival, a festival called Epiphany.
1: Joel, we have been doing this for over two years. Yeah. Which means we have brought sermons from men who are on pretty much every continent my, minus antarctica minus antarctica so if you guys know of anybody you know a good preacher yeah. from the past whose sermons are found in antarctica let us know um and from all across the spectrum of time that the church has existed it's always fun to do these really early sermons you wouldn't believe it but we always we always hear back from listeners who are touched and amazed that a sermon from almost two thousand years ago is still so important to them today but We also always warn our listeners that things were different back then. The church was working through core ideas and beliefs and that the people, you know, the way they thought and talked were just different. I always remind myself that these really early guys, when we talk about the cities, you know, this is the way I kind of put it in my perspective. When we talk about the cities Paul wrote letters to, we talk about them as once a part of the Roman Empire and we have to go get all that context to understand those letters better. But to these guys, those cities are just cities inside their own country. They have no idea that the empire they're in is ever going to collapse. Um, if you're an American, it's as if you're reading a letter to Chicago or LA or maybe Omaha. Like, those are just cities in the country you live in. It's not a big deal. And when you think about your just the Bible experience from that perspective, that kind of enlightens you to how far back you're going.
3: Now, that name in that era might sound familiar, might sound like something we've done before, Gregory of Nyssa, but that is not someone that we've covered so far. This will be the first Gregory of Nyssa episode, but we did cover his brothers. brother, his brother uh, I feel like, is a little bit more notable, a little bit more memorable in church history, Basil the Great. Is, when you have
1: gr- the great after your name, you know, yeah, you're more important. <laughs> you're on the board. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And we've also done an episode on Gregory of Nazianzus. And all three of these, Gregory of Nisa, who we're doing an episode on today, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Basil the Great, they all lived in the same era. They were all friends, and they all were part of a group that has the coined name of the Cappadocia Fathers. Gregory of Nyssa was the last of the Cappadocia father for us to get to, but here we are rounding all three of them off. And all three of these men uh, would get their claim to fame, their, their, their mark in history because of their work on the Trinity, which was very helpful for the Council of Constantinople in the year 381. The name Cappadocia itself is kind of an interest is kind of interesting because Cappadocia is actually mentioned twice in the New Testament. The first time, it's at Pentecost as we see people from Cappadocia are there. And also in 1 Peter it's mentioned as well as there's exiles that are from Cappadocia. If you're wondering where it is, it's between Israel and Europe in a portion of Turkey, and you hear that, you know, it's, it's between Israel and Europe, you hear that was mentioned in the New Testament, it'd be understandable if you were to think that there were lots of Christians there, but there really aren't, the church really never took hold there, partially due to the intense Roman persecution, it didn't even get its first bishop until the end of the 2nd century in the year 250, and that was one bishop that was appointed to a town inside Cappadocia called Caesarea. And th- that church had 17 members. So this was a really, really small, really uh, just unreached. Uh, I mean, again,
1: Christianity really just didn't take hold in that area. Once persecution settles down, the families that had persevered in the faith, they were kind of seen as the founding families of the churches, and, and they were given precedence and leadership positions. They were just kind of the assumed you know, top dogs, basically. And Gregory of Nyssa's family was seen as one of those. Uh, they became natural heirs to the leadership of the churches there as well, him and his brothers and sisters. Uh, we talked in Basil's episode how it was their sister turning to Christ that inspired the rest of the family to really take hold of their faith that had a profound effect on all of them. They went from kind of these wealthy autocrats to men living close to the land, much closer to hermits with just an open hand to the poor. Gregory of Nyssa nice was never formally educated Uh, He said all his training came from his older brother, Basil, and from the writings of scripture. Now, maybe a little bit later on, some scholars think he must have gone to school. He was pretty good with this stuff. So that's what scholars say, but according to Gregory of Nyssa, that is not the case. In 371, Cappadocia was split into two regions by the Roman Empire. Basil helped make Gregory the bishop of the other half of Cappadocia. But Gregory was not really like his brother. His brother was outspoken. He's this kind of great speaker. You know, the kind of people we have on these shows a lot. Uh, Gregory was a little less. He was kind of quiet. He was meek. And although he had tried to be a a lector at one point, kind of like St. Augustine, he just gave it up. It wasn't really his style. Uh, He may have also gotten married at some point. It's unclear. There are some people who suggest that he did and some people who suggest he didn't. With some of these really old guys, we don't, always have all the facts of who they are and what they did things that would be interesting to us people back then didn't always uh, think it was that interesting to take note of yeah you didn't need to write it down no it wasn't important what did he write about you know some obscure subject we may have that but was he married <laughs> i don't know not important so after he gets named bishop, he has some disagreements with
3: his brother on how to do things. And he tries to be a bit more compromising in his approach. For example, when, when people were getting thrown out of the church or something, he would try to understand them, try to relate with them, try to, to help mend things. And this happens a few times in his life where there's these church splits and he tries to help. He tries to step in and and help mend things, but it never really ends up going well for him. He's he seems to me like the type of person that he has some great ideas on theology. you know he, or, or, or I should say he has a theolo- theologically minded approach to how he has conversations. And, and you know he's he's think he's asking good questions, he's thinking about good stuff, maybe not the best administrative leader that you could put in charge of a church in charge of an organization. During his time as a minister, he would get charged with embezzlement and improper ordination. And if you remember our episode on Gregory of Nazianzus, he has to oversee some intense standoffs with the church and Gregory of Nyssa does too, but he doesn't do a very good job at it. he he fails to oversee them with any type of uh, success rate and Rome ha- had been trying to arrest him for a little bit failed to do so and sent soldiers after him to to actually do uh, the apprehension of him but he's able to sneak away and uh, the roman church essentially eventually would remove him from his position but two years later uh, a new emperor puts him back on the spot puts him back in a place of of leadership basil would actually end up dying and even though Gregory was not seen as nearly as influential as Basil was.
1: He did end up taking over a lot of Basil's duties. Things are starting to look better for him as he starts to get involved uh, during this time, taking over Basil's duties, doing a little bit of a better job, and he starts to get involved with defending the Nicene Creed. Opponents and attacks on the Nicene view to the Trinity are kind of going up all over the empire again. Even though the Creed of Nicaea was written in 325 to that, that council, it had to be kind of reaffirmed again and expanded on and once again put down in 381 and the second council on that. And Gregory of Nyssa, he was a really big proponent. He really helped get the Nicene Creed, you know, good defenses, good theology, good things written and preached on the subject in fact he went to Armenia to help get a pro-nicene bishop elected he's like this guy is a good guy we want him over this area he'll be really helpful to kind of making sure the nicene creed stays safe but somehow and in, in just an, only a way that gregory of Nyssa could live his life he ended up getting elected there instead and he didn't really want to seem like he wanted to do it he specifically said like in his personal letters and thoughts he didn't really care for that area that much and not long after he gets the position, opponents start to attack him. And a few months later, he just kind of leaves. And it, th- some people think that his one of his other brothers end up becoming the leader there. It, it's hard to tell. He then gives a sermon at the Council of Constantinople. It seems to be where he shines, the sermons and preaching, that kind of side of the work. And it's a real rallying. People love it. It's great. Um, he then was seen as so good at that that when another great preacher died, they called him in to be a uh, the, the one who gives his eulogy. And that went really well. This is, again, where he's shining at his, his ability to just preach the word of God and make God known to people. Um, later in his life, he is sent to Arabia to help find a resolution to who would be the bishop there they seemed to be a con- you know, conflict between these two people of who were supposed to be bishop they sent him there and he was unsuccessful as he seems incapable of making peace at all and after he died around the year 394 there still had not been decided who the bishop was supposed to be there i don't even know why you would have sent him because he seems pretty bad at this side of the job uh his later years were just marked with conflict people questioned him on everything And he just seemed like he was always in fights with his over how he, you know, his life and over theology all the way to the end of his days.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it.
3: This time period in the 300s was marked with conflicts over theology and Gregory was not immune to those fights. But what Gregory is remembered far most for in today's day and age is his push for explaining and talking about the Trinity. He's also remembered for a book he wrote about Moses. And this work challenged people to give up their emotional desires for things of higher thought life, right? He wanted to encourage people to be thinkers and not aim for things of this world. He's also one of the earliest theologians to really talk about and flesh out God's limitlessness, his infiniteness, that a perfect God of the Bible was limitless in each of his attributes, and that everything spoken or described in the Bible by God was only in part. As as humans are not infinite, we can't fully understand, we can't fully grasp, and we can never uh, fully understand the Bible while while we're still in, in our human form. But, as with everyone, uh, he he's also has issues that are contested that, that he talked about. Um, he's accused of being a universalist.
1: Yeah, a universalist is somebody who believes everyone is going to heaven, that there, you know, there is no hell with humans in it, at least. Uh, Joel and I will sometimes say we love church history, but we're not great theologians, per se. Uh, we usually use this line when there is a theological issue we do not fully <laughs> understand. And Gregory of Nyssa's universalism is definitely one that went beyond my scope and time to fully comprehend or spend the time researching to fully grasp why they say he's a universalist. Um, the basic gist of it seems to come from Gregory was in one of his works talking about the idea that through Adam all had sinned and through Christ all would be made well. And people took this implication to mean that all men were going to eventually be saved from their sins. And there, you know, universalists, um, will sometimes point to Gregory as their guy. It's been He's been used as like, the universalist will say, oh, we've been around a long time, look at Gregory of Nisa, And so to a degree, part of it comes from just them adopting him into their fold. Uh, however, in recent days, many have gone back through his works and said that this really does not seem to fit with his other theology and the things that he seems to say and speak on. He definitely held, as many Catholics did at that time, as many of the theologians from the era that we like did, to a purgatory that would refine uh, people by fire. But would every single person be refined by that fire? I found several quotes of his that talk about punishment for those who don't believe. There is certainly ambiguity and uh, uncertainty a little vague. And scholars who are re-looking into Gregory are asking the question if it, it, maybe we've been assuming him wrong and that this is not exactly true, especially because the Catholic Church itself did not believe that he was a universalist, has never held him to be a universalist. And he's, you know, obviously one of their guys in a sense. Uh, Basil, his brother, was also definitely not a universalist, so he would have really broken from his brother in rank on this one, Um, and and we don't see maybe the evidence, too, but you might come from this perspective. You know, we at Revised Studios certainly reject a universalist perspective on Scripture and would not even really put that forward if we thought that was something he really proclaimed and and we preached about a whole lot. Um, We believe there's definitely a lot of incredulity and a lot of enough reason to believe that's probably not an accurate read on his beliefs, but... If this possibility makes you uncomfortable, if you if you we understand, if you think I, you know, I don't even want to take the chance that I'm hearing that, um, got a sermon for you you might like Lemuel Haynes' Universal Salvation, It's a really <laughs> early one uh, where Lemuel Haynes, this African American you know Puritan preacher they call him from the just the late 70s, early 1800s, completely rips on universal salvation. That's much more close to what Joel and I believe completely on that. So go <laughs> go check that one out if you're if you're just not digging this one. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of good reasons to believe that that's not it, that that's more of a group of people taking him in more so than his actual beliefs. All right. So despite all
3: of the contentions and tough life, Gregory of Nisa preaches this sermon about baptism and what God does during baptism. This sermon is a powerful sermon that looks at how God uses water, an everyday object to bring life to his people.
2: recognize my own flock for today i see the familiar sight of the church who has turned away from the cares of the flesh you come together in your large numbers for the service of god what a joy it is when the people crowd the house and when the crowds that can find no place within fill the space outside in the country yard like bees for some bees work hard inside the beehive and others labor on the outside of the beehive so do my children never abandon that seal For I confess that I feel a shepherd's love and I wish when I am set upon this watchtower to see the flock gathered round around the mountain's base. And when it happens to me, I am filled with wonderful passion and speak with more pleasure in my sermon as the shepherds do when they see their flocks. But when things are not like this and you are straying off into the distance as you did lately on the Lord's day, I become troubled. And I consider the question of leaving here and seek the Mount Carmel like the prophet Elijah Or for some cave, all alone might be better. For men in depression, they naturally choose loneliness and solitude. But now when I see you crowding around here with all your families, I am reminded of the prophetic saying that Isaiah proclaimed long ago. When addressing the coming of the church with her good and numerous children, who are these that fly as a cloud and as doves with their young to me? Yes, and he adds and says, the place is too straight for me. Give me a place that I may dwell, Isaiah forty nine twenty. For these predictions, the power of the Spirit was making reference to the populous church of God, which was afterwards to fill the whole world from the end to end of the earth. But now that the time has come and bears in its course the remembrance of the holy mysteries, purifying man, mysteries which purge out from soul and body even that sin which is hard to cleanse away, and which brings us back to the goodness of our first state with God. Therefore, it is you, the initiated people who are gathered together, and you also bring other people, leading them as if you were good fathers, the uninitiated to the perfect reception of the faith. And I rejoice over both, over you that are initiated because you are enriched and with a great gift, and over you that are uninitiated because you have a great expectation of hope, the remission of what is to be accounted for, release from bondage, and a future close relationship to God. Soon you will be free and have boldness of speech, and in place of servile subjection to sin, there will be equality with the angels. For these things and all that follow from them, the grace of baptism secures and bestows on us. Therefore, let us leave the other matters of the Scriptures for other occasions and abide by the topic set before us today. Christ to us was not born that long ago, and yet... His generation was before all things, sensible and intellectual. Then he is baptized by John that he might cleanse him who was defiled, that he might bring the Spirit from above and exalt man to heaven, that he who has fallen might be raised up, and he who has cast him down might be put to shame. Do not marvel that God showed such great earnest in our cause, for it was with thought and care on the part of him that wronged us that the plot was laid against us. So it was with forethought on the part of our maker that we are saved. And Satan, that evil charmer, framing his new device of sin against our race, put on a serpent's disguise, a disguise worthy of his own intent, entering in his impurity into what was like himself. He became earthly and mundane as he was in desire when he became a creeping thing. But Christ, the repairer of Satan's evil doing, assumes manhood in its fullness, not as a disguise, but completely. And saves man and becomes the greatest example of us all. He sanctifies the first fruits of every action and to leave to his servants no doubts in their zeal for the faith. Belief then is a purification from sins, a remission of trespasses, a cause of renovation and regeneration. By regeneration, understand regeneration conceived and thought, not discerned by bodily sight. For we will not, according to the Jew Nicodemus and his somewhat slow thoughts... Change the old man into a child, and we do not form a new man from one who is wrinkled and gray-haired to, to a baby, as if we put back the man again into his mother's womb. But we do bring back, by royal grace, him who bears the scars of sin, and those who have grow old in evil habits, they turn into the innocence of a baby." For as the child newborn is free from accusations and from penalties, so too the child of regeneration has nothing for which to answer. He has been released by royal bounty from accountability, and this gift is not the water that bestows, for in that case mere water is a thing more exalted than all creation, but by the command of God. It is the visitation of the Spirit that comes to set us free, but water serves to express this cleansing. For we know we need to clean by washing in water to make our bodies clean when it is muddied by dirt. And we therefore apply it also in the sacramental action and display the spiritual brightness of our lives to help us feel it through our senses. Let us, if it seems well, preserve in discussing more things concerning baptism. Starting from the head, from the scriptural words, Unless a man is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Why are both named? And why is not the spirit alone accounted sufficient for the completion of baptism? Man, as we know, full well is made up of different parts. He is not one dimension, and therefore the medicine needed for healing him is twofold. For his visible body, water, and for his spirit, for his soul, which we cannot see, the spirit invisible. He is invoked by faith, present unspeakably, For the Spirit breathes where He wills, and you hear His voice, but cannot tell where He comes or where He goes. He blesses the body that is baptized, and the water that baptizes. Do not despise, therefore, the divine water. Do not think lightly of it as it were a common thing. On account of the use of the water, something so simple and found anywhere, the power that operates is mighty, and the wonderful are the things that are brought from it. And for this holy altar too, by which I stand is just a stone. It is ordinary in its nature, in no way different from the other slabs of stone that built our houses and adorn our pavements. But from it we receive the Lord's Supper, and we enter into things that are holier than the common. The same power of the word, again, also makes the priest venerable and honourable. He is separated by the new blessings bestowed upon him for his community with the congregation of men. While yesterday he was one of the listeners, one of the people, he is suddenly rendered a guide a leader, a teacher of righteousness, an instructor in hidden mysteries. And this he does without being at all changed in body or in form. But while continuing to be all appearance, the man he was before, he is by some unseen power and grace transformed in respect of his unseen soul to do this higher work. And so there are many things which, if you consider it, you will see that their outward appearance is unpleasant, but the things they accomplished are mighty. And this is especially the case when you collect instances from the ancient history. The rod of Moses was an old stick. And what is that? Just common wood that every hand cuts and carries and eventually gets thrown into the fire. But when God was pleased to accomplish by that rod those higher wonders that surpassed the power of language to express, the wood was changed into a serpent. And again at another time he plagued the water and now made the water blood and then later made to issue forth a countless brood of frogs. And again he divided the sea, completely cut it to its depths without flowing together again. Likewise, the mantle of the one of the prophets, though it was but a goatskin, made Elisha renowned throughout the whole world. And the wood of the cross was used for the salvation of all men, though it is, as I am informed, a piece of a poor tree, less valuable than most trees are. So a bramble bush showed to Moses the manifestation of the presence of God. So the bones of Elijah raised a dead man to life. So clay gave sight to him that was blind from the womb. And all these things, though they are matter, without soul or sense, were made the tools for the performance of the great marvels brought about by them. After they received the power of God, now by a similar line of reasoning, water also, though it is nothing but just water, renews the man to spiritual regeneration. After the grace from above hollows it, to speak concisely everywhere, the power of God and his operations are always incomprehensible and incompatible of being reduced to rules by man. For he easily produces whatever he wills, while concealing from us a shred of knowledge of his methods. Here also the blessed David, applying his mind to the magnificence of creation, spoke that verse which is sung by all, O Lord, how manifold are your works! in wisdom have you made them all the wisdom he was able to perceive but the art behind the wisdom he could not discover let us then leave the task of searching into what is beyond human power and seek that which shows signs of being partly within our understanding what is the lord's command baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit matthew 28:19 how in the name of the father because he is the primal cause of all things How in the name of the Son? Because he is the maker of the creation. How in the name of the Spirit? Because he is the power to perfect all. We bow ourselves therefore before the Father, that we may be sanctified. Before the Son also we bow, that the same end may be fulfilled. We bow also before the Holy Spirit, that we may be made what he is in fact and in name. There is not a distinction in the sanctification In the sense that the Father sanctifies more, the Son less, the Holy Spirit in a lesser degree than the other two. Why then do you divide the three persons into fragments of different natures and make three gods different than one another, while from all of you do receive one and the same grace? As, however, examples always help an argument become more vivid to the hearers, I propose to instruct the mind of the blasphemers by an illustration. Explaining by use of earthly and lowly matters, those matters which are greater and invisible to the senses. If it were you to fall into captivity among enemies, and were chained in misery to be groaning for that ancient freedom which you once knew, and if all at once three men who were noble men and citizens in the country of your tyrannical masters set you free from the constraints that lay upon you, if they pay your ransom equally and divide the cost of the money equally among themselves, wouldn't you view the three alike as benefactors? And make repayment of the ransom to them in equal shares? Since the trouble and cost of your behalf was the same to all of them, this we may see, so far as illustrations go, for our aim with it is not to render a perfect account of faith, let us return to our main point. I find that not only do the Gospels, written after the crucifixion, proclaim the grace of baptism, but even before the incarnation of the Lord, the ancient scripture everywhere prefigured this likeness of our regeneration. It is not clearly spoken in its form, but foreshadows were there of the love of God to man. And as the lamb was proclaimed by anticipation and the cross was foretold by anticipation, so also was baptism. For it was shown by action and by word. Let us recall its types to those who love good thoughts worth remembering. Hagar, the handmaid of Abraham, whom Paul treated allegorically in reasoning with the Galatians, is sent from her master's house by the anger of Sarah. For a servant suspected in regard to her master is a hard thing for lawful wives to bear. She was wandering in desolation to a desolate land with her child Ishmael at her breast. And when she was in dire straits for the needs of life and soon was herself ready to die, it was then an angel unexpectedly appeared and showed her a well of living water. And drawing on it, she saves Ishmael. Behold then, a sacramental type. How, from the very first chapters of scripture, It is by the means of water that salvation comes to him that is perishing. Water that was not before, but was given by an angel's means. Again, at a later time, Isaac, the same for whose sake Ishmael was driven with his mother from his father's home, was to be married. Abraham's servant is set to find the match, so as to secure a bride for his master, and finds Rebekah at the well. And a marriage that was to produce the race of Christ had its beginning, and its first covenant, its first prayer, by the water. Yes, and Isaac himself also, when he was ruling the flocks, dug wells at all parts of the desert. And the other people stopped and filled them up for a type of all these impious men of later days who hindered the grace of baptism and talked loudly in their struggle against the truth. Yet the martyrs and the priests overcame them by digging the wells, and the gift of baptism overflowed the whole world. According to the same force of the text, Jacob also, hastening to seek a bride, met Rachel unexpectedly at the well. And a great stone lay upon the well, which a multitude of shepherds were trying to roll away when they came together, and then gave water to themselves and to their flocks. But Jacob alone rolled away the stone and watered the flocks of his future spouse. Here we see, I think, a shadow of what would come, for what is the stone that is laid but Christ himself? For of him, Isaiah says, and I will lay in the foundation of Zion a costly stone, precious and elect. And Daniel likewise, a stone was cut out without hand, that is, Christ was born without a man. For as it is a new and marvelous thing that the stone should be cut out of the rock without a hewer of, or stone-cutting tools, so it is a thing beyond all wonder that an offspring should appear from an unwedded virgin." We see lying upon the well the spiritual stone, Christ concealing in the deep and in mystery the water of regeneration. But Jacob both draws up the water and gives drink to the sheep of Rachel. Add to this also the history of the three rods of Jacob. For the time when the three rods were laid by the well, Laban the pagan became poor, and Jacob became rich and wealthy in herds. Jacob took hold of the well, and Laban became poor. Now let Laban be interpreted as the devil and Jacob of Christ, For Christ took away all the flock of Satan, and himself grew rich. Again, the great Moses, when he was a child, fell under the general and cruel decree which the hard-hearted Pharaoh made against the male children. He was exposed on the bank of the river, not naked, but laid in an ark. Moses was saved through the water as a baby, and again as an adult. Again, according to the view of the inspired Paul, the people themselves, by passing through the Red Sea, proclaimed the good tidings of salvation by water, The people passed over, and the Egyptian king and his host was engulfed. And by these actions, this sacrament was foretold. Fleeing from Egypt, from the burden of sin, they were set free and saved through the water. But the devil with his own servants, I mean, of course, the spirits of evil, are choked with grief and perish. Even these instances might be enough to confirm our present thoughts on baptism being foreshadowed. But the lover of good thoughts must yet not neglect what follows. The Hebrews, after their long journey through suffering and accomplishments, did not enter the land of promise until being led by Joshua crossed the Jordan. And then we have the marvelous sacrifice of the old Tishbite Elijah that passes all human understanding. What else does it do but prefigure in action the faith in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and redemption? For when all the people of the Hebrews had trodden underfoot the religion of their fathers and fallen into the error of paganism, and their king Ahab was deluded by idolatry by the evil wife Jezebel, Elijah, sacrificed to God. The prophet, filled with the grace of the Spirit, coming to a meeting with Ahab, withstood the priests of Baal in a marvelous and wondrous contest in the sight of the king and all the people, and by proposing to them the task, of sacrificing the bull without fire, he proved to them that they were in a ridiculous and wretched plight. They were vainly praying and crying aloud to gods that were not there. At last, himself invoking his own and true God, he accomplished the test, proposed with further exaggerations and additions. For he did not simply, by praying, bring down the fire from heaven upon the wood when it was dry, but challenged and showed the attendants to bring abundance of water." And when he had three times poured out the barrels upon the wood, he kindled at his prayer the fire from out of the water. Even though water worked against the fire, he wanted to show with superabundant force the power of his own God. Now by that wondrous sacrifice, Elijah clearly proclaimed to us the importance of baptism that would later come. For the fire was kindled by water poured upon it, so that it was clearly shown that where the water is, there is the kindling, warm, and fiery spirit. That burns up the ungodly and brightens the faithful. Yes, and again, his disciple Elijah, when Nahum the Syrian, who was diseased with leprosy, had come to him for healing, cleanses the sick man by washing him in the Jordan, clearly indicating what should come, both by the use of water generally and by the dipping in this river in particular. For Jordan alone of rivers, receiving in itself the first fruits of sanctification and benediction, conveyed in its channel to the whole world, the grace of baptism. For in that river that Christ was baptized, these then are indications indeed an action of regeneration by water representing future baptism. Let us for the rest consider the prophecies of it in the words and language. Isaiah cried saying, Wash you, make you clean, put away evil from your souls. And David, draw near to him and be enlightened, and your faces will not be ashamed. And Ezekiel writing more clearly and plainly than them both, says, And I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you will be cleansed from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I give you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh, and my spirit will I put within you. Very directly does Zechariah prophesy of Joshua who was clothed with the filthy clothes and stripping him, adorns him with the clean and fair robes, teaching us by the figurative illustration that in the baptism of Jesus, all we putting off our sins, like some poor and patched garment are clothed in the holy and most fair garments of regeneration. And where will we place the Oracle of Isaiah, which cries to the wilderness, be glad. O thirsty wilderness, let the desert rejoice and the blossom as a lily and the desolate places of Jordan will blossom and will rejoice. For it is clear that it is not to places without soul or sense that he proclaimed the good tidings of joy, but he speaks by the figure of the desert of the soul that is parched and thirsty. Even as David also, when he says, My soul is to you as a thirsty land, and my soul is thirsty for the mighty, for the living God. So again, the Lord says in the Gospels, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And to the woman of Samaria, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. John 4, 13-14. And so is the Jordan glorified by regenerating men and planting them in the paradise of God. And of them, as the words of the psalmist says, ever blossoming and bearing the flowers of virtues, the leaf will not wither and God will be glad receiving their fruit in due season, rejoicing like a good planter in his own works. And the inspired David, foretelling also the voice which the Father uttered from heaven upon the Son at his baptism, wrote in his book that passage, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters, the voice of the Lord in majesty. But here we must make an end of the testimonies from the divine scriptures, for this sermon would go on indefinitely if one should seek to select Every passage in detail. But do you all show me the change in your ways that you should follow baptism and make known by the purity of your conversation the difference affected by your transformation for the better? For those things which are before our eyes, nothing has changed. The characteristics of the body remained unchanged, and the outside nature of your body is not changed by baptism. But there should certainly be some proof by which we may recognize the newborn man. Discerning by clear tokens the new from the old, and these, I think, are to be found in the intentional motions of the soul, which separates itself from its old customary life, and then enters a new way of conversation, and will clearly teach those acquainted with it has become something different from its former self, bearing in it no token by which the one self was recognized. This is the mode of the transformation. The man that was before baptism was wickeded, covetous, stealing the goods of others, a reviler, a liar, a slanderer, and all that is like these things, and lived the consequences of them. Let him now become orderly, sober, content with his own possessions, and giving from them to those in poverty, truthful, courteous, loving, in a word, following every good course of conduct for as darkness is dispelled by light as shadows disappear as light grows. So the old man also disappears when adorned with the works of righteousness. You see how Zacchaeus by the change of his life slew the tax collector, making fourfold restitution to those whom he had unjustly damaged and the rest. He divided with the poor, the treasure which he had once gotten before by ill means from the poor whom he oppressed. The evangelist Matthew, another tax collector, of the same business with Zacchaeus, at once after his call, changed his life as if it had been a mask he took off. Paul was a persecutor, but after the grace bestowed on him an apostle, bearing the weight of his chains for Christ's sake. Chains he once carried from the weight of the law, but now bore for the use of the gospel. So you should be changed in your regeneration, So you need to blot out your habits that tend to sin. So the sons of God must show change in their conversations. For after the grace is bestowed, we are called his children, and therefore we must emulate our father's characteristics. That by behaving and framing ourselves to likeness of our father, we may appear true children of him who call us to the adoption according to grace. For the wayward son and the disloyal son, Who does not grow up to be noble like his father in deeds is a sad reproach to the children of God. Therefore, I believe that the Lord himself, laying down for us in the gospel the rules of our lives, uses those words to his disciples. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your father which is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For then he says they are sons when in their own ways of thought they are fashioned in loving kindness towards them after the likeness of the Father's goodness. It is the works after the dignity of adoption that the devil plots most intensely against us, pining away the envious glances when he beholds the beauty of the newborn man who is earnestly moving towards the heavenly city from which the devil fell and he raises up against us fiery temptations seeking earnestly to ruin us of that second adornment, just as he did of our first state in the garden. But when we are aware of his attacks, we will repeat to ourselves the apostolic words, as many of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, Romans 6.3. Now, if we have been conformed to his death, sin from now on is surely a corpse, pierced through by the javelin of baptism, just as that fornicator was thrust through by the zealous Phineas. Numbers 25, 7 through 8. Flee, therefore, from us, ill-omened one, for it is a corpse you seek to ruin. One long ago joined to you, one who long since lost his senses for pleasure. A corpse is not captivated by wealth. A corpse slanders no one. A corpse does not lie, snatches not at what is not its own, reviles no one who encounters it. My way of living is regulated by another life. I have learned to despise the things that are in this world, to pass by the things of the earth, to hurry to the things of heaven, even as Paul explosively testifies that the word is crucified to him and he to the world. These are the words of a soul truly regenerated. These are the utterances of the newly baptized man who remembers his own profession to give up the world and to cling only to Christ. We will do well in what remains to end our discussion by turning it to the loving giver of so great a blessing, offering to him a few words as the requirement of great things. For you truly, O Lord, are the pure and eternal fount of goodness, who justly turned away from us, but in loving kindness had mercy upon us. You hated and were reconciled. You cursed and blessed. You banished us from paradise and recalled us back to it. You stripped off the fig tree leaves and unseemly covering and put upon us a costly robe. You opened the prison and released the condemned. You sprinkled us with clean water and cleansed us from our filthiness. No longer will Adam be confounded when called by you, nor hide himself convicted by his conscience, cowering in the thicket of paradise. No longer will the flaming sword encircle paradise around and make the entrance inaccessible to those that draw near but all is turned to joy for us that were the hairs of sin. Paradise, yes, heaven itself may be walked into by man, and the creation in the world and above the world that once was at odds with itself is knit together in friendship, and we men are made to join in the angel's song, offering the worship of their praise to God. For all these things, then, let us sing to God that hymn of joy, which lips touched by the Spirit long ago loudly, Let my soul be joyful in the Lord, for he has clothed me with a garment of salvation and has put upon me a robe of gladness, and as a bride he has adorned me with a beautiful veil, and truly the one who adorns the bride is Christ, who is and was and will be blessed now and forevermore. Amen.
1: I hope you enjoyed this sermon i did it's fun i love doing sermons from these really really back there guys just hearing people talk about our faith the same faith that we have today that is living in our hearts and just hearing and thinking about people who just so long ago were living for that at a time honestly when it was harder to live for it um, in some ways there was more persecution certainly during that era i mean these are the children uh, grandchildren of people whose in you know, whose mother had actually been killed gregory of nissa's grandmother had been persecuted and killed for the faith and so to hear them talking about this god that we serve and how he's a life giver to hear how water is used as a life giving to hit some of the examples he used in the old testament of water that gave life you know jacob's wells that's not one that you usually go to Uh, when you think of, you know, the the great works of God, yeah, I think he did a really good job, and it just reminded me, and I think the whole point of the sermon was, you know, these objects, water, um, you know, bread, they in them of themselves are not some special, super magical thing, absolutely not, but these simple objects in God's hands can be great things, can be life-giving things. And in the same way, when we are surrendered to God and when we are fully used by Him, we are also in a similar way, kind of used as God, used by God, and um, we can help give life to those. We can share the you know the water of life to others and, and give that out. And that's I just think it's a really cool idea he had, and I hope it was encouraging to you as you listen to it as well.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Patrick Studebaker. Patrick is one half of the Cave to the Cross podcast. He does that with his mentor Tony. He also runs a multimedia and website development business supporting small churches and Christian creators. He lives in South Michigan with his wife and two girls. He also likes watching bad sci-fi B movies. Thanks. Again, for Patrick uh, narrating this episode. And
1: Patrick has narrated episodes for us before. So if you want to check out some of his earlier work, you may recognize him from such episodes such as Gregory of Nazianzus, which was another episode he did for us. So he's done two of the three. It's it's hard to read these old ones. Yeah give him credit definitely uh say thank you patrick in the comments somewhere or something like that if you can because that's a it's not easy to do we would absolutely love it if you uh shared this episode with a friend told some people about it shared another episode you love of revive thoughts uh just kind of got the word out on what we're doing here this project that you know we've been doing for over two years now i think it's really important i think a lot of people have been deeply encouraged by it and the stories and the inspiration all of that is doing a lot for people's faith but people can't hear these things if no one lets them know we're doing it so we highly encourage you ask you shoot it to a friend shoot it to your pastor let someone know about what's going on here you never know uh what an episode of revive thoughts it might do it may deeply encourage someone right when they need it so we appreciate when you do that and we hope you will this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts